Well, good morning, familia. Uh, it's honestly so good to be together. Uh, they keep telling me that at some point the air conditioning is going to work in our actual sanctuary. They just don't tell me when. So let's just say we're going to be here definitely. How about that? Uh, I already tried it. I don't know how many times we're face. But I'm just so glad that we're together this morning because I want to celebrate something with you that's just so cool because our church is making history. Okay, so I just want to share with you how we're making history. Now, it might not be world history, it might not even be Oklahoma history, maybe it is. But uh, I think it might believe I think it might be Tulsa history or just our church's history. But last Wednesday we had a dinner with the pastor here on our campus. And it's just incredible because it was the very first dinner with the pastor right here with us. And what's amazing is that this entire dinner with the pastor was bilingual. Meaning we had English speakers and Spanish speakers in the same room. And that has never happened before in our church. And it's just incredible. So I think we can celebrate that. Is that okay? And I love how we are just a bilingual family of faith. That's who we are. And there's these moments where together uh, we have to either be in the same room speaking two languages, or there's moments where we're in two separate rooms speaking two separate languages. But it's just so fun because we have uh, Chris Wall and Brad Ayer, some of our other pastors there. They're talking in English, and I'm, I'm translating in Spanish. And so uh, this morning we're actually going to do something very similar. So I'm going to share the sermon time with uh, Chad Balthrop, and I'm going to do the English part, and he's going to do the Spanish part. Is that good? <laughs> I'm just but we are going to share the sermon time uh, together, and so I'm going to be going about 15 minutes, and he's going to come after me, and I'm grateful that we get to tag team this together this morning. Um, we are continuing in our sermon series called Re-Envision, and I'm so grateful for this series because in every generation, Man, we are on this mission, on the mission of God. But if you think about it, all of us go through these different seasons of life, and so in every single season, we have to kind of stop and think, say, okay, Lord, how do I have to re-envision how I approach the mission? How do I have to re-envision how I apply the vision that you have given us and the mission that you have told us to be on? And so I'm just so grateful for this sermon series because I think it's going to be beneficial in my own life. And so this morning, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 8. So go ahead and check there, Ezra chapter 8. And as you get there to Ezra chapter 8, I just want to remind you of what we talked about last Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, we were in Ezra chapter 7, and we focused on this life of Ezra. And uh, he was a man who devoted himself to, the, to knowing God and knowing him fully to living out the Word of God and also teaching the Word of God. That was a man and who this man was in Ezra. And what's incredible is that we saw an example of how uh, God blesses obedience and how Ezra was blessed because he was obedient to the Lord. And you have to remember, it's not an obedience that we usually think of. It's not obedience of riches. It's not the obedience or the blessing, sorry. The blessing of riches, the blessing of power, the blessing of all these things that we want. That's not exactly the blessing that we're talking about. Because we're not talking about some human-sized blessing. We're talking about a God-sized blessing. So it's not all these physical things. But we see that Ezra was blessed with wisdom. And he was blessed with favor because the hand of God was on him. And so that's kind of what we saw last time. But we're going to see in chapter 8, now that you're there with me, we're going to see that Ezra was preparing these people to go to Jerusalem, and he was also accomplishing that. And he had prepared them and accomplished going to Jerusalem after being in Babylon. And so the main idea for us this morning is this, I want you to write this down. 
is that God realigns his people. God realigns his people. That's what we see in Ezra chapter 8. And so we've been talking about this, um, this whole re-envision and even realign. And so the reason that I can say that God realigns his people is because we see that Israel was actually misaligned. They weren't aligned together. And I actually want to show you just some pictures because we've been talking about Israel was here, and they were here, and they came back here. So I want to give you some visuals and then talk about why I say that God realigns his people. So I want to show you this first picture. And this is just a big overview picture, just a big picture to see kind of where we're at. And so if you look at this, okay, I think it is, yeah. So if you look at this, this little this little boot, okay, so this right here is kind of the um, the area of Iraq is right here, and then you have Israel, modern day Israel right here, you have Egypt. So Jerusalem is right here, and then you have Babylon right over here. So this is kind of like a big picture of where we are at. And so we go to the next picture, it gives us a little bit more detail of kind of what was going on. So here this allows us to see that there's actually a desert. Right here. So you couldn't just go from Jerusalem, or yeah, from Babylon to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem to Babylon. There's this desert all in this area, so they had to go around. So this is what we see Israel going. They were here, they disobeyed the Lord, so then they were here, and then the Lord delivered them, so they had to come all the way back. And so I want to show you the next picture of just kind of what's going on. This is kind of important. So again, you have Jerusalem kind of in this little corner here. You can see it with me. Sorry to my people over here, I didn't mean I was having to block you. You can't see it with me. And then Babylon's way over here. But I want you to see over here at Babylon, this little transy-phrase river. And that river right there is the river where Ezra gathered the people in chapter 8. That right there is the river where they kind of came together, they congregated, set everything up to take their journey on to Jerusalem. So I just wanted you guys to have that picture in your mind as we talk in Ezra chapter 8. And so as we look at Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, you're going to see this genealogy, and this is actually where we get our very first point from. So the very first point that we have is God's wisdom in a genealogy. God's wisdom in a genealogy. So I want you to just scan that genealogy with me, just glance at it, look at it, and just say, wow, that's a lot of names. But whenever we read the Bible, genealogies are more important than we think, or more important than we like to think. Because if you think about it, it just shows us so much of of who Israel was and what who they were, what they were going from, and it's just so important because these genealogies prove so much to the people back then, but also to us. If you think back at some of uh, the week, uh, some of the weeks before, we talked about how the uh, the first wave of people that went from Babylon to Jerusalem. We talked about that first wave that went, and what's so interesting is that they were Levites who couldn't prove that they were descendants from Levite. Prove this descendants, they couldn't prove their genealogy, and so they couldn't serve in the temple. And these Levites were people who were meant to uh, be workers in the temple, and they, because they couldn't prove that they're descendants from Levi, they couldn't work. And so these genealogies are so important. I mean, think about even Matthew chapter 1. The book of Matthew starts with a genealogy to prove that Jesus was from the line of David, that, that Jesus was this promised Messiah. And these genealogies, there's just the wisdom of God because back in the day, they, they proved us like identification, as ID, or even as these receipts from the people. And so they have this historical meaning, and they have this meaning that's super significant. And what's so incredible is that even the names have this significance. And so I want to point to you to these names that we see. And I want you to look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, And of the descendants 
the Ahava Canal and proclaim a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayers. Here we see that Ezra, he proclaimed a fast, and he humbled himself before the Lord. Here we see God's wisdom and humility, and we see a challenge from Ezra, of saying before we embark on any journey, before we embark on any kind of project, Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment to worship the Lord, to humble ourselves before Him. And so, Lord, what are you to have us do? Because we have to remember that the Lord is, is the leader. He is our leader. He's the builder of the church. And as a leader, He's not just an overseer. But the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, is participating with us. He's participating in what is happening. He's absolutely leading us through His Spirit. And so we see that Ezra and his people are individuals who humble themselves, and there's this wisdom and humility, and this wisdom in humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, what do you have for us? And so we see this God's wisdom in genealogy, we see God's wisdom in the strategy and humility, but I also want you to see that there's God, there's this wisdom in accountability. You see God's wisdom in accountability. So I want you to look at verse 24 with me. Verse 24 says this, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, namely, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there, have donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold value at 1,000 dares, and two fine articles of polished bronze, as precious as gold. I said to them, you, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully as they weigh them out in the chambers of the house of God. In Jerusalem, before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel, then the priests and the Levites received the silver and gold and the sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of God in Jerusalem. So we read all of that. What do we see? We see God's wisdom and accountability. What's so interesting is that we have these priests and head of households there to see Ezra and to see all these other people count all the money and count, okay, this is what we have. So you see, these people are witnesses to all the donations, they're witnesses to all of the causes that we see, and they're present. And I just love it because they're just trying to be the best stewards that they can be. And what I want you to recognize is that they're not just being good stewards of this money, they're being good stewards of people. And the reason I say that is I want you to look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, I said to them, you, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. That right there, that statement saying that you and these things are to be holy and set apart for the Lord. You and all these things are meant to be set apart to be used by the Lord, to be used for the Lord. 
I think that's us as well. We are to be people who are holy and set apart, used for the glory of God, for the benefit of others. What we have is meant to be used to glorify God and for the benefit of others. And so that verse right there just demonstrates to us that we are to be consecrated to the Lord. So the next thing I want to see in verses 31 to 36 is this. God's wisdom in unity. God's wisdom in unity. So we've seen God's wisdom in the genealogy, God's wisdom in the strategy, God's wisdom in humility, God's wisdom in accountability, and now we see God's wisdom in unity. So I'm going to read this for us starting in verse 31. It says this. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Hala Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. He protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. On the fourth day, the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth's son of Uriah, who is Eleazar, son of Phineas, was with him. And so were the Levites, Josephat, son of Yeshua, and Noadai, son of Eden. Everything was accounted for by a number of weights, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all of Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven male lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trinity Freakies, who then gave that assistance to the people and to the house of God. This right here we just see is unity because I just want you to realize that two times we have 12 bulls for Israel, and then we have 12 male goats. This is for all the tribes of Israel that we see. And so we see this moment where now they've arrived, they've arrived to Jerusalem, and they were all set apart. You kind of have like half of the people of Israel here, and half the people of Israel here, but now they're together in a unified voice, are humbling themselves and worshiping the Lord, and saying, man, Lord, you protected us. Lord, you guided us. Lord, you have brought us here in this moment for this time. And as returnees in a unified voice, we will worship and sacrifice these 12 for our twelve, And I just, I love it because their first response, after they rested for three days, their first response was to worship the Lord. Their first response was saying, hey, let's get everyone together. Let's worship Him. And I think that for us, as we continue forward, before we do anything, during we do something, and even afterwards, we're to be a people saying, man, let's, let's worship the Lord. Let's give Him all of the glory. Let's be a people who who consecrate ourselves to Him before any project, before anywhere, anywhere we go. And what I love about this entire story of of Israel is just all the details in it. And that's why I thought it was so important for us to read together. I know sometimes as we read a lot of scripture in church service, we can just tune out. But I want to set the example of how everything that the Lord has written in His Word is behind how everything that the Lord has said through His Word is, is good for teaching and preaching and for all the things in our life, even in genealogy, you know what I mean? 
It's these moments where the Lord allows us, even in Ezra chapter 8, to say that He is the one that aligns His people. He is the one that aligns us to go the same direction, the same way, because of His Spirit. And I'm grateful that we have the Holy Spirit because it is through the Holy Spirit that we can be unified in Christ and say, okay, where are we at and where are we going? And that's why I want to invite Chad Walsh up and just give us this moment to talk about exciting realignment. Aren't you grateful for me, Simon? very, very grateful for him, for Jonathan, for Jesus, and just for, just for each one of them. It's so great to get to be here today. It's been a while since I've gotten to be on this campus with you. I have some responsibilities in the Wasso. And so, first off, let me just say thank you. It's so good to see everyone. And I just feel like I should ask a question. How are you doing? Awesome. All right, all right. We've got one awesome and a couple of them. This is good. This is very, very good. Well, I am very thankful to get to be here today. And I'm excited about the future that our church has together. And that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. And and really, Ezra is a great springboard for us to use as a, as a passage of Scripture to consider as we think about what God is doing in the life of our church. Uh, first off, and this is just very important spiritual information, when you're about to have a baby, this passage is filled with great baby names. So we should probably record some of those as a possibility. But uh, 75 years ago, nearly 75 years ago, next year, 75 years this happened, but nearly 75 years ago, God started a church in Owasso. And just a few years, two years before that, God started a church in Tulsa. One was First Baptist Owasso, one was the Calvary Baptist Church in Tulsa. And about four years ago, those two churches came together. And it's amazing to see what God has done because for generations, there have been prayers praying that God would let there be a lighthouse for His love, for His grace, for His faithfulness, just for His love and kindness in Owasso and in Tulsa. And now, that is a unified vision between two campuses. And what we've talked about, and we've said our vision several times, and we always say it like this, that, that, that we believe that what God's called us to do, our desire, is to love all people to Christ and to equip them on their journey with God and with one another. And it's just amazing to see for 75, for 77 years, the way God has answered the prayers of a generation. It's, it's just a generation, it's, those are prayers that have just continued to be prayed over and over and over again. And I think what you talked about at the very beginning, that you celebrated the dinner with the pastor in multiple languages, was on this campus for the first time this last Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night, uh, for the first time the new members class will take place on this campus. And again, it'll be bilingual, and it'll be awesome to see how all that comes together. And it's amazing to see the number of people who have been here for such a long time working and serving faithfully and praying such great prayers about the gospel and about this community. And at the same time, it's amazing to see new people who are here who really represent the answers to those prayers. And there are new prayers to be prayed, and there are, there are, there's a continuation of that story to be told. There's just more that we need to do together. And I'm excited about the future that we have together, not just in this location, but in Owasso, and that's a part that I think sometimes, because we always show up at one campus. I get, I have the privilege of bouncing back and forth between campuses. But, but, but generally on a Sunday morning, you show up here. And so what you see is here. But the scope of who we are as a church is so much bigger than that. 
And I can say exactly the same thing to the people on the Owasso campus. On the Owasso campus, it's brilliant to see what God has done. God is answering prayers there, and there are new people, and there are people who have been there forever praying. These prayers have just been very faithful. And yet today, their, their influence is bigger. Your influence is bigger than one location. And that, that influence actually is not bigger than just one location. It's not just bigger than two locations. Up on Garnett and 116th Street North in Owasso, there's a place called the Mission Center. And out of the Mission Center, we, we serve the needs of the people of our community. It's actually a ministry. We partner people who have things with people who need things. It's the way we help people in our community. Last Thursday, there was a guy named Terry Worthen. He set up some stuff. He just gave some food away to the community and provide. He, he brought out a portable shower and just gave people an opportunity to take a shower. And, uh, and so, in every location that we are, we're looking for practical ways to help people. But we're not just doing it from our church locations. We've actually built an entire facility that's focused on serving the needs of people. And we're going to do that everywhere. I think that's incredible. And then also, we have this ministry that we call Mission Global. It's our broadcast ministry. I might think of it as our online campus. And really, that online campus is really our, our new front door. For most of the people who attend our church the first time, at some point, they interacted with us online first. And so it's just amazing to see how God continues to expand and broaden the influence or the context and the influence of our church. And I don't think he's doing that accidentally. I mean, we just saw today that God, God's wisdom has a purpose, it has a, it has a vision, it has a strategy. There's a unity to it. There's an alignment to it. And we see what God was doing in the nation of Israel. You understand what's happening in the book of Ezra? Is, is God is setting the table for the coming of the Messiah. Have you caught that yet? If Israel doesn't show back up in Israel, then Christ doesn't show back up in Roman times in Israel. And over those Roman roads, the gospel was carried. And in that culture where there was, there was a diversity of language, but that diversity of language kind of had a commonality and Koine Greek, all of a sudden you get the entire New Testament, for the most part, written in Koine Greek. God's setting the table politically. He's setting the table practically. He's setting the table spiritually for all that would happen next. In, in salvation history, not just political history, but in salvation history. This wasn't in this moment. For the children of Israel at that time, it was about, you know, with Ezra and Nehemiah, it's about rebuilding the temple and rebuilding walls. But in God's picture, in his view, it was so much bigger than that. It was a generational experience that was predicated on the prayers people prayed and the plan that they tapped into that was really simply God's plan. And he was, he was setting the table for this generational experience that would, that would affect, well, well, here we are today still talking about it, right? Here we are today still talking about it. So in the life of our church, as we celebrate, as we think about these 75 years and these 77 years, next year we're going to do some really special things to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate all year long as we do that. But there's also some moments that we have in the life of our church that we call next steps. And just like the next steps for the children of Israel were about rebuilding a temple or rebuilding a wall, our next steps involve some improvements to our campuses in every location. It involves some improvements to our campuses in every location. So I'm going to talk to you today about four projects within our next steps that we would like to do together. And then I'm going to tell you some, some even bigger picture things than just the projects. So just like with Ezra, the project for him was the temple. For Nehemiah, it was the wall. 
Uh, these are our projects, but in God's big picture perspective, there's a lot more to it than just bricks and sticks. Does that make sense? And so let me tell you about some projects that we want to do together as a church, and it affects everywhere we are as a church, not simply one location, but really every location. So the first thing we want to do is, I don't know if you've looked around, just take a look around the room, just real quick, just take a look around the room. One of the first things that we want to do is we want to renovate this room. We want to, yeah, I think that's good. We can celebrate that. That's good. We want to renovate this room. This space is an incredible space for community events. It's an incredible space for fellowship. It's an incredible space for worship. And, uh, and while Misa will say, I don't know the projected timeline, the only reason we don't know that is because we've ordered all the parts and half the parts are here and the other parts are on their way. And as soon as they show up, because the parts is parts, we're going to put the parts in, right? That's going to happen as soon as they show up. They've been ordered, they're on their way, and we just can't wait for them to show up. But this is not just a place, a great place for community events and fellowship. This is a great place for worship as well. And one of the things that we can do across all of our campuses is we can align and unify the vision that we have we can let the spaces that we're in speak to the mission that we have, and we can connect those with the way they look and feel. And so there's a fellowship hall on the campus in Owasso, and we can make this fellowship hall functional and look refreshed and new and match the fellowship hall in Owasso, which also happens to match the look and feel of the mission center on 116th Street North on F1 Garden. We can do all of those things so that when someone comes into our spaces, when someone comes into our places, they can see our heart literally on the wall, that our mission is to love all people to Christ. That they can see that they, they can see a picture of who we are, where we are, anywhere we might be. And so the first step in that process, we really, I don't, I don't know if you all know this or not, but we've been talking about renovating this room since before COVID hit. We actually had plans on the books to do it, and it looked something like that. So that's kind of the, that's not the end of the thing, that's kind of the beginning of an idea for, for this room, that we would renovate this room and make it a, a fresh space for community events, fellowship, and worship, and, and all of those things. And so uh, that idea was on the books before COVID hit, and then COVID hit, and we kind of put on the emergency break a little bit. Everybody kind of went, whoa, what is this? We don't know, what, we don't know what's going on. So we just kind of put the emergency break on. And at this point today, it's time to take the emergency break off. It's just time for us to do that. And it's time for us to move forward with the renovation on this campus. Now, uh, there's, there are three other projects. I'm going to talk about those three other projects first. I'm going to take a quick break right here to simply say, there's a way our church goes about doing these kinds of projects. We raise funds to do these kinds of projects. Um, and one of the things that's important in the life of our church is we are debt-free as a church, and we're committed to remaining debt-free. We're not going to go into debt for any of these projects. There's another principle that I think is important. We want as a church for every individual in our church to move towards financial maturity. And as a church, within our budget and the way we manage things, we want to model what it looks like to move towards financial maturity. Well, what does that mean? Well, we believe that Scripture teaches three very important principles about the way we manage our own finances, personally and as a church. We believe that God's called us to give generously, to save wisely, and to live appropriately. As a church, we give generously. We give at least we give away at least ten percent of every dollar that comes in to like-minded ministries. And we think that as individuals, that should, that's a step of financial maturity. And we kind of we pick a percentage, we pick a target, we pick a time. And, and we give generously to that. And I, I'm not going to tell you that our church is the only target, should be the only target of your generosity. I'm not going to tell you that. I think your church is a, 
worthy target of your generosity. But I don't think it's the only target. I hope that you grow to be a hilarious, huge, generous person in your life and that everybody experiences your generosity, not just with your stuff, but with your time and your talent and just with all of who you are. Generosity is a key feature, and I think it's like a muscle. I think it will atrophy if we don't use it, and I think it grows stronger every time we use it. So while I won't tell you your church is the only target, I won't tell you that I think your church is the worthy target. You ought to give generously, and that's a step towards financial maturity. Our church does that. We give 10% of at least 10% of every dollar away to like-minded ministry organizations. We also believe that you should save wisely. Saving wisely just means that, that I recognize that I'm going to have some expenses tomorrow that I'm not really, I don't know about. And, and for our church, we put into our budget this plan to save. And the reason, the reason we plan to save is because Proverbs and Scripture tells us you should plan to save. There's going to be times of feast, there's going to be times of famine. And if you save just a little bit over a long period of time, it's amazing to see what God does. As a church, we're not saving to retire, and we're not saving so that our investments will just grow massive. What we're saving for is for future ministry. We're saving for moments when God does the unexpected and says, hey, I want you to move, let's go do this. We're saving, actually, for opportunities and projects that are just like the Tulsa Fellowship Hall. For the past many years, actually, several years, I think it's eight or nine years, our church has been saving, and I can tell you right now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you what the value of all four projects is, but I can tell you right now that because we've been saving, some of the money for these projects is already in the bank. And it's because, as a church, we want to model what we are asking every individual to do, to give generously, to save wisely, and that's that life's piece of it, to live appropriately. We're going to live within our means. We're not going to spend more than we make as a church. We think as individuals, that's wise as well. You ought to live within your means. You ought to spend less than you make. You ought to adjust your lifestyle to, to, to do that as much as possible. And we can help one another with that. That's actually the fun of generosity, right? In that moment when the unexpected happens in my life, there's, there's a, a million generous people around me who can help in that moment. Sometimes I have to let people know what's going on and ask, and sometimes they just know what's going on, and God brings the miraculous through them, and we get to be a part of something incredible as a result of that. And so again, we give generously, we say it wisely, and we live appropriately. We hope those are steps towards financial maturity that you'll take as an individual, and we as a church want to model that. So with all four of these projects, even though the dollar that I'm going to say in a minute sounds large, it is large. It's large to me. Probably it's going to be large to you. But it's, it's an amount that some of it's already in the bank. And some of it's just simply a matter of us continuing to do what God's asked us to do. For some of you, you're already giving. And I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your generosity. I'm not sure that you necessarily need to give anymore. I think all of us need to say, hey, God, what do you want us to do? But if you're already in that space of financial maturity, well done, keep going. Uh, and if you're not in that space of financial maturity, if you haven't started giving somewhere to someone, if you're not saving something at some point, if you're not living within your means, well, then maybe you really ought to, have to go before the Lord. I think we all need to go before the Lord and say, God, I'm not doing my life. And if God says, well, here's where you can do better, here's where you can make small adjustments, see what will happen. I have a friend who's been saving for his daughter's college since she was born. He's not got a lot of stuff. He's not, he's not rich, he's not wealthy, but he's been saving about this much of his budget since she was born. And on the day she went to college, between that saving 
ways and in scholarship she's earned, showing that graduated Adam's debt. Not because he's rich, but because he followed those financial maturity uh, principles of giving generously, saving wisely, living appropriately. It's something that all of us can do if we'll simply submit to our Heavenly Father and say, hey God, I want to run my money and my life the way you say it. And as a church, we're trying to model that. So one of the projects is the Fellowship Hall right here in Tulsa. There's another project. That project is, uh, there's some things that, uh, that we need to change in the worship center and in the other location, up in Owasso. Uh, that room we moved into 20 years ago with the intent of it being a temporary space. It was built to be temporary, but over 20 years, we found that it's not temporary. And so uh, it is now the primary home for worship on that campus. And, and so there's some adjustments that need to be made to that. Along with that uh, are some adjustments to the foyer. And the reason why we want to do those things is because we want to be able to unite the look and the heart around everywhere we are. So we've got a worship center in the foyer there. And then uh, related to that is the, the broadcast ministry of our church. I think of it as our online campus. That broadcast ministry has become our new front door. Uh, most people experience our church through our online campus before they ever show up on campus anywhere. And, and I don't have time to tell you the miraculous story of our broadcast ministry. I'm just going to tell you the shortest version of it possible. I came to uh, First Baptist Owasso 20 years ago, 20 years ago in January. And in my first year here, our pastor, was a different pastor, his name was Dr. Roger Ferguson. He sat me down and he said, you have some skills with broadcast, and I'd like us to have a broadcast ministry. And I said, well, that's awesome. That'd be really cool, but it takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of people. And he said, well, here's what we can have. Well, let me tell you, it's easier to tell you what you can't have. You can't have a lot of time, a lot of money, or a lot of people. I just need this to have a broadcast ministry. So we started praying about it. And people showed up. Uh, the Vice President for Engineering for Clear Channel Communications is a member of our church. And, and equipment started showing up. And there was a season in our broadcast ministry where I could walk into the room and put my hand on something and say, we didn't pay for this. This was donated by the Fox News Channel. We didn't pay for this one. This was donated by Clear Channel Communications. We for this one because this production house closed down and they didn't know what to do with their equipment, so they just gave it to us. Oh, wow. That's been the miraculous story of God's provision for our broadcast ministry. The end result is we've had a great broadcast ministry, yet the equipment and the personnel in terms of how we have to train them inside of that personnel meeting the volunteers that help make that happen because it's all run by volunteers. Um, it's a little bit like Frankenstein in the room. You've got all these diverse pieces that they are with you know, duct tape and chewing gum making work every Sunday morning. And so that brings our online uh, ministries would include some new equipment, a modernization of our standards. But here's the thing I'm the most excited about. It's not about stuff that I'm excited about. Our online campus is an opportunity to connect with and move people around the world. I know in, in, this, in this room, there are people who have been in a Sunday school class where a person from Paris has zoomed into their Sunday school classrooms on, 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 on a regular basis. It's through the technology of our broadcast ministries that some of those things are possible. I know that there are people who we need to help them move from an online large group to an online small group. We need to help them move from an online small group to some kind of face-to-face meetup where we can serve one another and get to know one another face-to-face. And our online campus can really be the thing that helps us with that. And then the last one, which I get excited about, but I don't understand why anybody else would get excited about this. So y'all get ready. Can y'all be excited with me about something for just a second? Okay. Yeah. Even if you have to fake it. Okay? <laughs> you have to fake it. The last one is, get ready, 
signage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We need to update our signage on every campus because you know what? We're not just a small church. Our, the first time the Wasso first met on Main Street in the Wasso in a tent. That they met for, for about a year in a tent, and then they moved to a Quonset. We're not that little church on Main Street anymore. But, but we're also not just one church in multiple locations. We're one church in multiple languages. And the signage that we have all over every campus needs to communicate in multiple languages. Beyond the communicating in multiple languages, the signage, the things we put, the art that we put on our walls, as it reflects, as it's reflected by the words that we put on our words, it helps people find their way once they get here. And beyond that, it speaks to the heart of who we are. And so signage is one of those things that, that we need to upgrade. And so today we call it Next Step Sunday because we believe these projects represent some of our next steps of faith. And and the Total cost for all of those things is about $1.5 million. Wow, that's a big number. It is. Um, some of that's already in bank right now because our church has been committed to giving generously saving wants to be Some of that is about us looking at our church and saying, I think we can do this. I think we can do this in 12 months. I think there are people in our church who haven't caught the vision for giving generously and saving wisely yet. And I just want to challenge you to pray to do that. Go before the Lord and say, God, can I surrender my finances to you? That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to give it all here. What that really means is that you need to surrender your finances to the Lord and recognize that not everything that comes to you is for you. And you need to ask God in his wisdom, God, how should I use this for the glory of you and say Most of it, you'll spend on all of the needs that you have because God wants to take care of the needs that you have. That some of it we should save for those unexpected moments and for those future possibilities that God has for us. And some of it we should give. You should give to a variety of targets. But I absolutely believe the church is one of your worthy targets. And at the same time, there are some of us who are giving already, and maybe we can do better. Maybe it's maybe things have changed for us financially, and we've seen to re-examine, reevaluate the lens of those purposes that I've given you. We just need to sit down and say, God. I'm going to bring this before you once again. What would you like me to do? Some of you are in great financial, the best financial shape of your life, and you haven't made any adjustments to how you give, how you save, or how you live off the rest. So let me bring that before God and see what happens. Some of you are in more dire straits or circumstances financially than you've ever been. And you've been giving and saving here, but now it's time for you to adjust that. All of those adjustments are appropriate. Right now, based on the number of families we have in our church, if every family gave about $200 more a month, we would knock all of this out and then some in less than 12 months. And so that's I, that's just a number. I think that's a, a, an amazing way to look at it. That's not us saying give $200 more a month. That's just trying to help us understand who we are as a church. We're bigger than the people in this room. We're bigger than the people in Owasso. We're bigger than the people at the mission. God's doing something miraculous through all of us. And it's amazing to see what happens when each of us just say, God, we don't need you. And then he takes what I can do with what you can do, with what you can do, and what they can do, and then suddenly all of us are capable of doing something more than we can ever possibly do. Does that make sense? There's one last piece of this. If you were at Family Matters last Sunday night, there was a message that we communicated that I think the way we threw it was not the way it was caught. And so uh, for those of you who might have been at Family Matters last, last Sunday night, I want to I make certain that we're clear about that. 
we start talking about this idea that we want the mission that drives us to be the name that people understand about who we are. We want people to understand that our, our goal is to love all people to Christ and equip them on a journey to become one another. We want the heart of who we are to reflect everywhere. We want people to be able to show up here or there or somewhere else and go, we know who they are and we know the heart behind them. And so we started pitching a language. We started talking about a language and a logo that we can talk about this location as the mission also. We can talk about the location of Tawaso as the mission Owasso. We can talk about the mission center as the place we help people and the mission global as our broadcast ministry. And all of that language is absolutely relevant. And I think the look of a single logo, the logo of the mission, will unite and unify us all, will align us all together. That's what we talked about last Sunday night. But part of what was caught was, oh, we're changing our name as a church. But we're really not changing our name. Um, we are First Baptist Owasso. This is the Tulsa campus of First Baptist Owasso. So the name isn't really changing. But, but the scope of how we identify who we are, where we are, and the heart behind us, well, we are going to try to align that. We are going to try to make it crystal clear so people can see wherever we might be. This is who we are. This is where we are. And this is the heart behind us. The best illustration I can give you about what that looks like is I have friends who are recent grandparents. Any of you recent, well, any of you recent grandparents or just grandparents? Any grandparents in the house? There's a couple of you, that's good. Um, these recent grandparents don't yet know whether or not the grandkids are going to call them grandma or grandpa or pipa or mima or I have a friend whose grandkids call him Batman. That's an interesting grandpa name. But they don't know, but they're so excited. They're so excited to see what that grandchild will call them. Well, for this particular man, I know him as George. His name is George. And his name is not going to change. But the context of his influence has changed. Because the context of his influence has changed, he now has another name by which he's known. And it's a name that represents and reflects the influence of who he is. Well, over these past 75 and 77 years, God has increased the influence of who we are as a church. And the context of that influence has grown. And for us to say, yeah, we're first time to so we'll always do that. Is 100% accurate. Yeah, my name's George, I'll always do that. And at the same time, in this context, we are the mission also. And in that context, they are the mission also. There is a context of us helping people, it's the mission center. And there is a context, it is the mission online, which is our global presence. And I hope that makes sense. And I want you to know if you have questions about any of that, I am more than happy to answer as many questions as you have in style. I love questions. Questions make me better. They don't they don't challenge or push us. They just they just help us. They help sharpen us and help us become better. So any questions you have, I'm I'm available to, to answer those questions and I would love to do that. Now I want to bring this in for a landing in regards to this passage in Ezra. And then specifically what God's asking us to do. We get to sit in a place like this because of prayers that were prayed a generation ago. Uh, some of you have been here long that you've been praying these prayers and you're seeing these prayers come to life and answer right now in this generation. And today, I want us to, to be able to pray together. And I want to say to you, our next steps together. Today I've talked about it in the context of projects and Esau did a great job of unpacking a scriptural view of what Ezra has to say about what next steps look like. Um, all of our next steps are predicated on prayer. 
I'm gonna say there's three ways you can be involved in our next steps, but when I say there's three ways, it almost sounds like I'm giving you a choice. I hey, pick one of these three. I'm really not. I'm really saying you have to jump into all of these three. You ought to, the first way you can be involved in our next steps is you ought to be praying. Because we are here, man, there were some prayers that were prayed and some decisions that were made a generation ago that put us in this space right now and give us the privilege of worshiping together today. So maybe you could be the generation that blesses the next through the prayers that you pray and the decisions that you make. So I'm, I'm asking us all to pray together. I'm, I'm hoping that you'll join us on this gospel adventure and that you'll actively be someone who out in the community is looking for a way to tell the story of your faith to someone else and to invite someone else into this incredible gospel adventure by saying, hey, let me tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done in my life. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. The church is his plan for sharing that hope with the world. And let me tell you what he's done in my life. Because I was lost, but now I'm found. I was broken by sin. You've been broken by sin, too. You may not even agree with anything spiritual that goes on ever, but I can tell you you agree with sin because you've been hurt by somebody else's sin. And you know that you've hurt somebody else. You know it. You know that to be true. And I found a solution for that. I found it. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you might be here today, and you might need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's an opportunity that you have right now in this moment. So I hope that you'll pray with us, all of us, about our next steps together. I hope we'll be the generation to bless the next. I hope that you'll join us on this gospel adventure. That if you're not a believer yet, You'll place your faith in Christ. And if you are, you'll share your story with someone else this week, wherever you might go. And then the last piece of it is the give piece. And the give piece isn't simply about give to your church. I think it's a worthy part. The give piece is really about financial maturity. Take your financial life before the Lord and say, God, I think those principles make sense to give generously and save wisely and live appropriately. Would you provide for me? And then as you provide for me, show me who to give to. And as you provide for me, show me how to say it. As you provide for me, help me be disciplined enough to live within my means. God, would you do that? I, I've seen you do that over and over and over again in the hearts of people. And so here's what I'm going to ask us to do. After this, is just going to come up and play for us a little bit. While he's playing, I'm going to ask us to stand where we are. So let's stand where we are. And I'm going to voice a prayer. After I voice a prayer, we're going to have time to just respond. And our response today, I hope, is just very, very simple. I hope your response today is that you'll spend some time, as Jesus sings over us, I hope you'll spend some time in prayer. Some of you might need to come to what this altar might be. And you're just so amazing. And, you know, God is always moving. But it's such an honor for us when we see it, when we feel it. It's like, Lord, thank you for the honor of us being able to just witness what you are doing. And I just want to celebrate with you that our church is having this great opportunity to build these beautiful relationships with people in our community. Like, I have some new friends that are here today, and I'm just so thankful for you. Um, I'm just so thankful that we've been able to get to know each other a little bit. And, and you know, because God is allowing us to build these relationships with people who speak English and speak Spanish, there's some really cool stuff happening in our church. And so I want to invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock to our church. I want to invite you back because I'm going to share what the Lord has been doing and what we're going to be doing as a church together and how you can join us and all that fun. Because we're going to be sharing 
how the Lord has just put something in our hearts, this vision to build trust in our community. And so I want to invite you back at 6 o'clock tonight, and I want you to come hungry. I want you to come just ready to have fun. I want you to come expecting to hear what God is doing in our midst and how we can join. And I, and I believe that you will leave tonight, because we're going to end around 7.30. I believe tonight that you will leave with full bellies, but also full hearts. And then, man, this is what God is doing. This is what we can do together. And so as we continue this morning, I just want to make sure I, I mention that to you. But as we continue, I want to show you a video with no context. I'm not going to tell you what it is or what it's about. But I, I just want to play it for you. There's no audio. It's just video. So let's go ahead and play that. So when I first saw that video, I laughed so hard. I was like, oh my goodness. And then I thought, you know, one day that would be a great sermon illustration. What is this? Here we go. Um, you know, I just find that video so funny, but isn't it so true, though, that humans have this tendency, just like this little, little lamb, have this tendency where we are, maybe we're stuck in our sin, where we're stuck in this darkness, where we're stuck in all these things, and we just can't possibly get out without Jesus. And so Jesus, he, he takes us out, and before we can even say anything, before we can even praise him, we just run back into the darkness. And, <laughs> that's what we do. We have this tendency as human beings to run back to our sin rather than running back to the Savior. We have this tendency as human beings to throw ourselves back into the chains rather than throwing ourselves into the arms of Christ. We have this tendency as, as human beings, and we see that not only in our own lives, but we're actually going to see that in Israel. You see, we're actually in Ezra chapter 9 this morning, so go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 9. And as you see this, I want you to think just as a believer this morning. Think of someone who may be like, man, I'm thinking about my own life, and I don't want you to lie to yourself. Right? Don't, don't lie to yourself here. But don't you find it interesting that we do have these moments in life where we do run back to our sin instead of running to the Savior? It reminds me of what the psalmist says about the dog who runs back to his own vomit. Runs back to his own vomit. And you see, all of us are sinners. I stand before you today as a sinner myself who's been saved by grace. I need the power and the grace of God in my own life. And, and maybe this morning you're someone who's not a believer in Jesus. So I hope you hear this morning. I hope you hear this morning that you need Jesus because you don't get brought back to life. You need life because you're dead in your sin. You are dead in our sins. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I hope you hear me today that the grace of God is amazing. But it's not an excuse to continue sinning. But the grace of God is so beautiful that we can run back to Him and say, Lord, I want to run to you instead of running away from you. Thank you for welcoming me with your arms. <clears throat> and so there, as you look at Ezra chapter 9, and maybe you're skimming it with me, I want you to know that if you're new with us, we've been in a series called uh, uh, what's the series called? Anybody remember? Re-envision. Okay. Re-envision, yes. We've been in the series called Re-envision. And this morning, I want us to see that I think we need to re-envision repentance, which is actually a sermon title for us. Re-envision repentance. And whenever we talk about repentance, it's usually a heavy topic, 
And it's going to be today's going to be a little heavy, but I think you can handle it. I think you can, you can handle the heavy topic of repentance. And I want us to re-envision what repentance is and what repentance does. And so as we look at Ezra chapter 9, I want us to just get this big sermon ideas again. So we think about, okay, what, is, what am I going to tell my family? What am I going to tell my friends? And what I learned this morning? Here's what I'll do right now. Repentance is our loudest grace. Repentance is our loudest grace. And the reason I say that repentance is our loudest grace is because what would happen? Just imagine. What would happen if, if maybe you view repentance a different way? What would happen if our view changed repentance? So rather just being the same, it's like, oh Lord, but we saw the thing that's like, I don't want to be saying, oh Lord, it's an act of praise. What if we view repentance as this act of praise? So Lord, as we as we repent to him, we understand that we are highlighting the grace of God. As we repent to him, we understand just the depth of our sin. And when we understand the depth of our sin, oh my goodness, grace elevates. The richness of God and his grace elevates when we understand the depths of how sinful we are. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and read just the first four verses in Ezra chapter 9. So the first four verses said this. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples, from their, from their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Rizites, Debusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons that mingle the holy race of the people, peoples around them. The leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat down in all. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there Paul until the evening sacrifice. You see, this is the word of the Lord, and we praise him for that. And you see, when it comes to this word of God, it teaches us so many things. And one thing I've noticed in all of chapter 9 is Ezra's genuine brokenness over sin. Ezra's genuine brokenness over sin. You see, we're going to see that repentance is our loudest praise, and I just want to make sure you guys know that. Before we even get here, remember what we finished last time? We finished with Israel making all these sacrifices and celebrating to the Lord and saying, Lord, you've done so many things. We're so grateful. We're celebrating. Now we are back in our land. The temple has now been finished. And then in this moment, kind of have these leaders going to Ezra saying, ah, <clears throat> Hey, Ezra, we got a problem. I think you, I don't know if you noticed this, but people in Israel are living in sin. Living in sin because they're going against the commandment of the Lord to not marry people from the other nations. And you see, the reason that this was a sin, the reason that, that Ezra was just so torn up, like we're going to see here in a minute, is because God had commanded them not to marry people from other nations. Why? Because when they married people from other nations, what they did is that they were swayed to believe like the other nations. They were swayed to be uh, these people who believe what they believe in, what happened is idolatry. 
adultery, this word where instead of seeing God as, as God Almighty, they went to other gods, and they made other things idols. So that's what we see Israel doing, is that they were swayed in these detestable practices that we see in verse 1. It said that they went ahead and did the detestable practices of all the other nations. That means that they fell into idolatry rather than seeing God as the one true God. And we actually see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and it makes it super clear God's commandment. I'll read this to you. It says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Now check this out. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. You see, the Lord knew this, and this is exactly why Ezra was so beat up about it, because he knew that these people were committing idolatry. Now, maybe you've been in this position before. Okay, so I'm going to call some of you out, but uh, don't raise your hand. How many of you have tried to like flip to convert? You, you know what that is? It's kind of like when you see somebody who's super cute, and it's like, man, if, if I can get them to like me, I can get them to like Jesus. It's like, okay, that's not exactly how it works. It's like, I know God can do some incredible things, but man, it's a dangerous game to play. It's dangerous, and we see that here in Ezra, we see in Deuteronomy, where it says, man, if you, if, you, uh, if you marry them, they will bring you and sway you into, into something else, into the world. And we actually see God saying the same thing through Paul. Paul says the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, what does it mean to be yoked? Like, in our context right now, yoked means to be like, you know, big and buff. And so if you were yoked, yeah. But that's not what it's saying right when it comes to this yoke, just to give you a little picture, just imagine two bulls side by side, they're connected by this thing around their neck or around their mouth, and wherever one goes, the other goes. And so imagine that. If you're in the same yoke or the same thing with someone else who's not a believer, and you're a believer trying to go straight, man, they go one way and that's sweet. You see, I say that because so many of my friends, I've seen them go through. I've seen them go through the majority of them that they try to marry a non-believer and persuade to what their detestable ways, detestable practices, idolatry. And this is what Ezra is saying. And Ezra is just so broken about it. I mean, look at verse 3. He tore his tunic, he tore his clothes, he tore his own hair out. Like, I've never really tried to tear my own beard out. Like, I've shaved it and never tore it out. Like, I cannot imagine it. And he was going through and that's just saying, I'm tearing my beard out. And that's why I say that Ezra had this genuine brokenness over sin. And we see that he was genuinely broken over it. He was disappointed. He was frustrated. And so I want us to keep reading in verse 5. Because this is just what, what Ezra's going to say and then we see his prayer. Starting in verse, in verse 5, it says, Then at the evening sacrifice I rose from myself uh, uh, for myself at this one. With my tunic and cloak torn, I fell on my knees, and my hands, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I prayed. So here we have Ezra's prayer at the beginning of it. I am too ashamed to disgrace my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been 
great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to privilege, to privilege and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Here we have the beginning of Ezra's prayer where he's just expressing this deep brokenness over sin. And what's interesting is that Ezra's not the one who has sinned, but he says, our sins. But at the very beginning of, of the prayer, he says, because of our sins are higher than our heads and our view. He was feeling it so deeply that he said, man, I'm going to include myself in this sin because I know I'm not perfect. This is a prophet saying, Lord, we have sinned greatly against you. And we have sinned greatly because we have gone into idolatry that has come through marriages of the this idolatry, and Lord, I'm just crying out to you, and it's almost like you can hear Ezra just crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, have we just not learned? Lord, have we not learned as a people that you have gone through this great magnitude and this great relief to bring us back to our home? You've gone through so much, Lord, to bring us back to be able to rebuild the temple. Lord, do we not remember that we are this holy race in the Hebrew, it really translates to this holy seed, meaning that they were the seed that would be planted that one day because of them being there, because of them establishing the temple of Jesus to come. That they're the ones setting the stage for Jesus the Messiah to be here. And now, man, they're committing the same sin that got back into the first mess, into this mess in the first place. They were reverting back to their sin, and Ezra felt that. And look what he said. He said he was drowning in their sin. They were drowning in their guilt. They were drowning in all these things. He was drowning in all these feelings and emotions and thoughts. And I just want you to feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of what Ezra might have been feeling and thinking. He was saying, I'm drowning in our sin. I'm drowning in our guilt. And when I read that, I kind of think back to my life. And I want you to think back to your life. Have you ever had a moment where you just felt like you were drowning? In your own sin, you were drowning in your own guilt and your own shame. And when you did feel that way, what did it lead you to do? Did it lead you to absolutely feel broken over your sin and run to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, I repent, I confess for that I'm sin? Or did it lead you away from the Lord? Did you just say, Well, I've already sinned, might as well keep sinning? It's just interesting about sin and how it works is. The more we sin, the more we're like, well, I might as well just kind of keep doing this. Because the more we sin, it seems like it's harder to come back to the Lord. Anybody else feel that? And that's what we see Israel doing, that they're in this great chasm, you can say. And so I want to read to you just Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 4. I think it's just a good kind of illustration for us, because when we sin, again, the grace of God does not give us an excuse to Sin. If anything, the grace of God calls us to come back to Him. So let me read this to you. What shall we say then, starting verse 1 of Romans 6? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism and into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then in verse 11 it says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not in Messiah, not in good works, not anything else, but in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Let me read that again. For sin may no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. It's just believers. My goodness, the grace of God is incredible. Because of the grace and holiness of God, we should be broken over our sin. We should say, Lord, oh my goodness, you are so great, you are so holy, you are so mighty, and I am not when I'm broken over my sin. We have to be careful here because our disobedience and our sin doesn't just make God sad. It doesn't just make God cry. That's not, what it, that's not what it does. Our sin is complete disobedience and telling God, you are not worthy of my grace. Instead, the reason we come back to the Lord, the reason that we can say that we can praise the Lord to the way that we repent is because God is holy and worthy of us coming back to He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our repentance. He is worthy of all of these things, and He desires us to live these lives that are worthy of the high calling of Jesus Christ in our life. Because Jesus died, and He rose again to transform us, to renew us, to give us new life, to make peace with God, not to make peace with sin. He says, I want you to have peace not peace with sin, not saying, well, I'm okay with sin. No, no, no. He says, I want to not be okay with sin, but I want to be righteous in your eyes. And so I want us to be a people, and I need to be a person who is okay with sin, God. I recognize my sin, Lord, but I repent and forgive me, and help me through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help me through your Holy Spirit to continue to live in righteousness, Lord, because I'm not made righteous on my own but I'm made righteous in you, through Jesus. And Lord, I need you, through Jesus alone, through faith alone, and his grace, that I can be saved and be transformed, be made new, and also be empowered to the Holy Spirit to live in a righteous way. And then I want us to see verse 8 together. Again, this is all under that one point of Ezra's genuine brokenness over sin. Verse 8 says, But now, the continuation of this prayer, but now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary, and so our God gives light to our bodies and a little relief in our bodies. So though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us a new life to rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins, and has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. You see, in this, in this little part, you have Ezra just thanking the Lord. Saying, Lord, look at all you've done. Well, look what you have done amongst our midst. Like, you've given us this brief break out of our bondage. Lord, you repaired a way, you've made a way. And then verses 10 to 12, and just to kind of summarize, it's just once again saying, Ezra saying, Lord, we repent as a people, we confess as a people, but now what do we do? Like, Lord, what, what would you have us do in this moment? So I want you to look at verse 13. 
This is what he says. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve, and have given us a remedy for this. Shall we then break the commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant of survival? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you, my people. But because of it, no one of us can stand in your presence. I mean, I, I mean we're not going to end here, but you can totally end here. Because I want you to just recognize what Ezra saying in he says this, he says, you have punished us less than our sins deserve. And I just want you to just feel that and to say, man, as we think back at what Israel has gone I mean, Israel, if you had sinned against the Lord, and then they were conquered, they were, they were taken out of their land, they were reconquered by Persia, they were enslaved, but then the Lord worked his hand, and then Israel could come back to to uh, their place in Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, but then there's all of these delays in the temple. There's all these things, these decades of, of just hardship. And they have gone through so much, so much hardship. And Ezra, Ezra still says, you have punished us less than our sins. That phrase right there should rock our world. As we think of our sins, saying, Lord, you have punished us less than we deserve. I mean, here's a silly illustration, but this is what I think of when I think about this. When I was just a little kid, I loved Power Rangers, so I was like, you know, I love him, Power Rangers. And I remember, <laughs> uh, I just remember playing like that, and, and I remember being in my grandparents' house, and I was playing upstairs, and, and I was just digging through drawers, and then at one point I found this like little metal with a lander on it. And I was like, oh, that's super cool. I feel like I could do like a little mind thing, but every time I did this, I'm like, hey, this is just the worst. I don't want that. So I got some scissors and I, and I started cutting the little lady thing. I said, Oh, cool. Okay, now it works. And so I was so excited. So I go to my family house and I'm like, Hey guys, I found a little pirate thing. This is so cool. And my aunt just goes like this. She goes, He said, That was like my honors medal in college that I got when I graduated. And I was like, Oh, and I just felt so bad. And I started crying. And I honestly thought I was going to get like a hundred papas in Spanish as I speak. Because I thought I was going to get like a hundred papas, and I was like, man, I'm stuck here. Please. And I remember my aunt, my mom, coming to me and looking and saying, hey, it's okay. You didn't know what the power rangers. Your only thing now is you just can't play upstairs. You have to play downstairs. And I was like, ooh, that pain. I when I think about that, it's just like, man, I was punished less than I deserved. I said, because of that, man, I, I, oh, I should have had so many spankings, but I didn't. I mean, maybe you've been in that same position where you, know, you got pulled over by a cop, and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to get a $200 ticket and say that to the morning. You're like, okay, I got punished less than I deserved. So maybe, maybe you've been in that same position, but this phrase right here that we see, it put us on our knees because it's just absolutely true. It's absolutely true because think of all the moments that we have either intentionally or unintentionally sinned against God and looked at God and said, God, you are not enough. 
But even in that moment where we are acting as these enemies of God, God was so, so gracious that he did. So gracious to show mercy to us. That Jesus took the punishment for us, even though we are so enemies of this. Because the ultimate punishment for, for sin is death. The ultimate punishment for us to, to not have this life in Jesus, but Jesus died for us so that we may have life. That's what we see all throughout the scriptures, and that's why I can say, Lord, may your repentance be my loudest praise. Because when I repent in humility, I say, Lord, you are greater than I am. But when I repent in humility, I say, Lord, I, I need you, and thank you for the work on the cross. Thank you that you rose again for me. Watch how we say that repentance is our loudest praise in him, because that just demonstrates and illuminates that he is almighty, that he is all so we've seen in chapter 9 that Ezra had this genuine brokenness over sin. And we're going to look a little bit just at chapter 10. And what we see in chapter 10 is Ezra's genuine responsiveness over sin. Ezra's genuine responsiveness over sin. In verses 1 to 6, we can kind of summarize all of this as Ezra prayed. Ezra cried out. He cried and he confessed for Israel. But then, you see that Ezra made a plan to turn away. He made a plan to turn away. So I want you to start reading with me in verse 7 of chapter 10. It says, A proclamation was an issue throughout Judea and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders, and would himself be expelled from the assembly of exiles. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion because of the rain. That's funny. They were distressed because of the rain. The verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married a foreign women adding to Israel's will. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you in your foreign lives. I just want you to notice that Ezra's response to the sin was quick. Ezra's response to tear his clothes to be broken was quick. Ezra's response to say, okay, Lord, we need to turn away and do something was quick. It wasn't slow. And as we look at verse 10, I, just, I, want, I want to make sure I say this because people can interpret this in some interesting ways. But verse 10 has less to do, okay, here, has less to do with Ezra advocating for Israel to uh, divorce and to separate from their wives. But it has more to do, okay, more to do with Israel, Israel separating themselves from the living and sin. From separating themselves from idolatry, separating themselves from worshiping other gods, separating themselves from all these things, and the result of because they marry these, these women and these men from other nations. And that is the main thing that Ezra is saying is that you need to separate yourself, turn away from the sin in which you're living. He understood that this confession and this repentance is like this first step of honoring the Lord, this first step of doing the Lord's will. Ezra was this advocate for them and saying, turn back. Turn back to them. 
And that's actually what we see in James chapter 5, verse 19. It says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, then someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So here we just continue to see this whole main idea of repentance being our loudest praise. And that we can genuinely be broken, should be genuinely broken over our sin. And our response time to that should not be slow, it should be quick. And this is why the application for us, just a big application for us is this. Immediate repentance is immediate obedience. So I want you to write that down. Because I want you to be thinking about that this entire week. That immediate repentance is immediate obedience. Just like delayed obedience is disobedience, I believe that delayed repentance is unrepentance. Delayed repentance is unrepentance. Throughout all of this and throughout all of Scripture, we see that sin is serious. It is so serious. And it's not just something that we do. Sin is like the condition of our hearts. Sin is this condition that it's not just what we do, but it's what we think, it's what we say, it's anything that goes against treasuring Jesus as the one and only. It's anything that's against who Jesus is and what he's commanded us to do, and it's not just something that we should be sad over. Like, we shouldn't just be sad over sinning against our God, but we should be broken over that. Because the Lord is worthy of that, and he's worthy of us confessing and repenting. He's worthy. And I just want you to think back at that video that I showed you at the very beginning with that little lamb out of me. For some of you, that's an illustration that you need Jesus Christ. For some of you, that's an illustration because you were there, the depths of your sin, you couldn't get out. It's only by the power and the grace of God through Jesus himself, through faith in him, that he pulls us out. And he doesn't want us to run back in. He wants to look at us and say, oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, man. You loved me even when I didn't want to be loved. Thank you for loving me when I just felt like no one else loved me. Lord, thank you so much that I knew I was just stuck in my ways. But you pulled me out and you gave me your life. You made me creation. So that illustration for you this morning might hit home because you need Christ. And for some of you, that illustration might hit home because maybe you're a believer in here. And right now, you're just stuck in the sin. Like you're just running back to the chains instead of running to Christ. And, 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 and then you know that Jesus wants to pull you out, and instead of saying, Jesus, yeah, I know I need to run back to you, just go dive right back in. You see, I think all of us have been in that moment before, but I just want you to think about that. I want you to think about just your week and saying, Lord, in the next week, I don't want to plan to sin. But I don't want to intentionally sin. Lord, help me with your Holy Spirit and not be someone who just runs to sin instead of running to the Savior. Lord, help me be someone who immediately repents. Rather than someone who says, well, I'm going to live in my sin for a little bit. And then, and then they don't repent at some point. That's not what the Bible teaches us. And then for some of you, I want to say this. Don't wait until Sunday to repent. Don't wait until you have to like teach a Bible lesson to repent. 
And then don't wait until you have to teach your kids something about the Bible or something that they should do that you're not in. But that you have repented from. Don't wait until you're standing in front of a friend who needs the gospel more than anything in their life. Don't wait for that. In the moment that you know you know you need to repent and do it. God's grace is incredible. And so I'm going to leave you with this and we'll finish. It's 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him not to be and his word is not in us. Immediate repentance is immediate obedience. Maybe today, some of us need to take that first step of obedience. Let's go ahead and bow our heads together. And I, just want to take, I just want you to take a moment to just respond to the Lord right there in the beginning. Because maybe today you're saying, I, I need Jesus. I have never put my faith and trust in Him. I have never been transformed by Jesus. My heart's never been transformed, and I need that. Maybe that's you this morning, and I just want to ask you, would you be so bold and just raise your hand? I'd love to just pray for you and know who you are. Saying, I need Jesus in my life. And then I see you, I see you, thank you. Put your hand down, amen. Because whenever we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We will be transformed. And this morning, if you raise your hand and that's your cry, my goodness, the Lord is faithful. And then maybe today, you're like, man, you said, I, I, I'm a believer in Jesus, but I just been living in sin. I've been choosing sin over. Savior, and would you be so bold to also raise your hand and say, He said, I need some prayer. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me, the Holy Spirit to help me. Because if we are believers in Jesus, the Spirit is in us, and works in us and through us and beyond us and empowers us to keep going. And so you might feel stuck, but man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in freedom. Our chains are gone. We are set free. Lord Jesus, thank you for, first of all, your word. Lord, that teaches us so many things about who you are and who God is. But Lord, also thank you for songwriters that are inspired to put words to music. That give us a, an anthem and a cry to put it to words and say, Lord, you are good. You are enough. And because of you, my chains are gone. Not because of what I have done, but because of all of you have done. Lord, thank you that you do extend your grace. And Lord, may we walk in freedom. Lord, may we remember to be broken of our sin. 
that we should respond quickly and immediately to Lord, that we would be a people who praise you with everything and make repentance of our spirits. In Jesus' name.